One quick message before I start the show. You can find all the links and resources for this episode by visiting the show notes on rickyrichards.com. If you enjoy this episode, do consider subscribing on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you're feeling particularly generous, you can help me to grow the show by leaving a review on iTunes. For anyone who does subscribe, review or share, thank you. I appreciate it. Now let's get into the show. Welcome to Ricky Richards Represents, the show where I talk tips for success with leading figures of creativity and innovation. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the show. My guest today is Mark Hannell. Mark is the founder of Figshare, an online digital repository where researchers can preserve and share research outputs, including figures, data sheets, images, videos and more. Having just completed his PhD in stem cell biology at Imperial College London, uh, Mark started Figshare in order to promote open science, giving everyone the ability to freely access research papers from academics all over the world. The plan was to give a platform to academics whose research often remains unforeseen, or unseen even, and in the process to encourage breakthroughs and revolutionise the research community. To talk to us about how he built the company and some of the challenges he's faced along the way, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. No worries at all. I I thought, before I jump into it, I wanted to do a little bit of a secondary introduction because just uh, whether, I'm not even sure whether you're familiar or not, but the people that typically listen to this are, they're interested in business and creativity and innovation and uh, I've never had a scientist on before, especially one who's got a PhD and is uh, ultimately far more intelligent than I am. But for people listening, I think it's always good to kind of expose yourself to different different people with different backgrounds and, and what you share in similar with everyone else is this journey that you've been through with regards to building this, this company. Um, so I thought it'd be nice to start off just by telling those listening where you were before you started the company and what some of your first actions were in actually creating it. Yeah, and I'd like to point out, I mean, PhD, anyone can get a PhD. You've just got to not know what you want to do for long enough and eventually you'll, <laughs> uh, they'll kick you out of academia. But um, so, yeah, I, I was doing a PhD at Imperial College in stem cell biology. Um, I always kind of did well at school, so I just kind of stayed in academia. And when I was 21 and I finished my first degree, I got to this point where I was like, what do I want to do with my life? And I was doing genetics, I like stem cells. And so I thought, why don't I just carry on doing this? And then during the course of that, I ended up doing this PhD. And during the course of my PhD, I had lots of time in between my experiments uh, to think about stuff and to think about the way I worked. And I had one problem with the way I worked. I had many problems with the way I worked, but one of them that I thought I could address in some way. Um, It was a beautiful naivety. And um, I started making my own research available. My research videos, data sets, things that couldn't get published in a traditional format. I suddenly realized that these were never going to go anywhere. I just spent my weekend making this video, man. What's going to happen to this video? It's just going to go in a file drawer. So um, I started making them available online. Other people started doing that. And it got to a point where um, people took interest. And and, uh, I managed to... to there was, it was right time, right place. There was a, an incubator investor starting down the road well, in King's Cross in London uh, at the same time. And so I finished my PhD on the Friday. I started full time on the Monday. And, uh, and just to have interest, what was that incubator? So it's called Digital Science. It's, um, 
it was a spin out of a, a traditional publisher called Macmillan Publishers, and uh, it became a separate organization. And it's 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 a really cool place. Uh, it, they've it's it's very rare. There's a lot of things that it's very rare. You don't realize how nice things are until you take a step out and then look back in, particularly with academia. So now saying. There's so many problems in academia, but I didn't know when I was in there. And it's only having been with digital science for a few years and seeing other friends go investment routes and thinking, oh, yeah, I didn't realize how sweet I had. So you really did land on your feet there because I did a little bit of research with them. And they're not a traditional venture capital firm that Mm -hmm. seems to invest in, you know, companies that obviously I feel like uh, they're not a non-for-profit, are they? They must have a a financial incentive, but they tend to be within the science realm. Yeah, uh, completely. And... uh, there's a lot of things that they do that I don't think traditional venture capitalists would do. Uh, you know, they're a commercial company, so revenue is a is a bottom line at some point, but it's not the be-all and end-all. And it's, uh, as I say, it's, it's been a really great place to work. Lots, It's very competitive now. I go in very early, so maybe I wouldn't get in now. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's you live and you learn. One thing I wanted to talk about, and I, I've been preaching about this as a, as a concept for ages, and a guy called Stephen Johnson talks about this thing called the adjacent possible. And it's just that ideas tend to stem off of pre-existing ideas. And obviously what you do is you create a platform where people share their research, and one, one aspect of that, I imagine, is that it maybe opens up doors to adjacent ideas or, and that kind of thing. Um, that was my take on it anyway, but I know you're the expert, so I was just curious to get your perspective of what, is actually important about open science. Why? Why is it something we should we should care about? Yeah, it's a. I mean, it's a. It's a strange concept for those who aren't involved directly. And um, it's so strange that when we have developers start, we have to sit them down and say, you know, not everything you do, you know, if they haven't come back from an academic background, they may have a computer science degree. Not everything you do will make sense. This is a very illogical world that we live in, and you can go back and see it's post World War Two American. Uh, soldiers coming back and getting promised an education is like a butterfly effect that has led to so many weird things happening in this space so the ideal thing is is just everybody does their research and makes it all openly available and then anyone anywhere can build on top of it you know stand on the shoulders of giants and somebody in ethiopia has all the research the idea that we have access to all the world's knowledge is true as far as wikipedia but you want access to the cutting edge revolutionary articles in academic research. It's usually £30 to access it. So just, obviously you would have uh, been on the platform longer than anyone. What are some of the ex- uh, some examples of uh, interesting content which has surfaced on the platform? Yeah, there's loads of crazy stuff. There's, and it's, it's, uh, it's great to play in the perverse incentives kind of model. Um, and, you know, saying about, uh, I've forgotten the term you just used, parallel. Uh, parallel... Uh, oh, sorry, uh, the adjacent possible. Oh, the adjacent possible, yeah, yeah. yes, yeah, yeah. The adjacent possible, and I think the adjacent possible is a very interesting concept, as you described it to me, it's the first time I've heard the term. But um, it's adjacent is a great term, because a lot of the people in the space that we work in say, well, if it was reinvented today, this is what it looked like. And that's like, well, cool, but it wasn't. It's not going to be invented today. Yeah. Academic publishing or academia is, is hundreds of years old. So um, the idea that it's going to be reinvented today, you have to play in the adjacent. You can't go five leaps afield of that. But the other way around is you get people who are trying to now, the way I say it, the, the line I like using at the moment is every academic, 
Every researcher wants to be famous. And that's not like the Kardashians famous, famous but if you want to um, win the Nobel Prize, if you want to get grant funding, people need to know who you are, or at least know who your research is. So you can be the most introverted academic ever, but people need to know about your research. So the idea that people can promote their own research is where we're seeing loads of cool research coming through. I actually want to dig into that a little bit because it's it's a kind of more it's a trend in general just that you, in order to get anywhere in any field that you're having to become more publicly facing mm-hmm. but um just with regards to scientific research in particular when people are uploading this stuff obviously there's been examples in the past of where misinformation has resulted in something like how do you maintain standard or or do you have a different idea of about about what should be shared on the platform. Yeah, I mean, we've been doing it for a few years now, so the zeitgeist has changed, and, you know, we live in a post-truth world apparently now. Yeah. So the idea of uh, just making everything online, making everything available and then having people filter it is, um, for me, a much more reasonable way of approaching knowledge on the internet. Because why should you believe anybody? on the internet anymore. So uh, the interesting fact about it was the way that academic research was disseminated as these big uh, publishing houses. And the way I try and explain it to my my mum is uh, each of these publishing journals are like a football team. So you want to play for Man United, or if you mean you want to play for Everton. But there's different levels of how good you are. So if you play for Bradford, no offense to the Bradford fans, it's probably not as good as playing for Man United. So you want to submit your journal, your paper to the highest journal. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's quality. It means it's been checked and it's been checked for rigor. The idea, the thing that supposedly separates those two levels is novelness of research. How novel is this research? And obviously sequencing the human geno- genome, super novel, brand new, 10 years ago. CRISPR is the big one this year, 2017, brand new. But if you're saying to everybody that in order to publish in the man you, you need to have a big result, it kind of nudges everybody to make big results there. Well, that's so fascinating because I see a parallel there massively with, say, the creative and ad industry, whereby if you want to end up in the awards annual, you have to create something which is really disruptive and breakthrough. (laughs) But that doesn't necessarily mean it drives results for your clients. It might just mean it's extremely visually distinctive. Um, And yeah, to to your point, there's the buzzwords, even I know about CRISPR and, you know, as as somebody that's not in science because it's one of those buzzwords this year. Um, so in terms of you, you, the theory there is is that it's, it's reviewed amongst the community and that good stuff floats to the top. Yeah, the idea is it really is just I think you need to have all of the information bef- to make an informed decision. And if you can have all of the information and then you can trust certain sources or I think the idea for the journals, what they should be doing is just letting everything go online and then having their editorial board pick what they think is the most interesting or novel as opposed to saying send us the most novel stuff and we'll let the best stuff through because it actually causes problems you know if everybody's saying that this is novel you get people faking their results you get people faking their data and then you know yeah so people 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 leveraging the game or or playing the system in order to try and exactly that yeah it's it's exactly it's as you say, like the uh, ad industry, with the with the as soon as you create a perverse incentive, as soon as you give people a target, that's the number one thing. And if that target 
essentially pays their mortgage, you can't blame them. So going into incentives, obviously within the academic community, you're looking at things which could feasibly be cures or they could be, uh, who knows, they could be scientific things that result in new materials or all kinds of stuff which results in financial return. Mm -hmm. So when people are sharing stuff, obviously that's uh, levelling the playing field with regard to competition. Mm -hmm. Does it any time have negative effects? I, I think about, say, some industries where, uh, let's say Netflix, where everything's piling onto the platform and, and as a result of that, cinemas are dying or um, there's no longer room for medium-sized budget films because they either have to be blockbusters or super indie. Mm -hmm. um, are you seeing anything similar like that? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's happening in loads of industries, right? You've got the car industry, which was saved by the US government, and you've got... Um, in academia, it's these big old publishing houses, you know? The interesting thing about the publishing houses, and there's one uh, which is known as a bad word in academia, is called Elsevier, and um, they they have lots of good people working for them, but the problem is they've they've messed up a few too many times, yeah. and uh, they've got bigger profit margins than Apple. So they're a billion-dollar company, and they've got bigger mar profit margins than Apple, and they're supposed to be all about sharing the world's good, the world's knowledge. So there's something not aligned there. So if they go out of business, people will lose their jobs there. But would it be for greater for humanity? Probably. Do, do the big institutions or the big journals, do they, how do they respond with, with regards to Figshare? I mean, we work with a few of them, um, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's 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 a fine. I like to call it dancing, you know, between the um, it's it's that idea of the establishment and how it works in this field is very much like the establishment in other fields, and it's very rare that you're going to get you know an Airbnb type event. You you have them in a lot of areas, you know, the the Spotify's and the Airbnbs and. It, what's interesting about academia is the internet was originally invented to share academic data between universities. And yet, this is actually also a really interesting idea when it comes to um, uptake of ideas is a lot of academic software in the past was designed by academics who are not designers. So there's very little you have to do to make something look really good and get buy-in. Of course, my design team will be upset with me saying that. They work really hard and they've done really well over the years and they yeah. rightly get the um, you know, notoriety for that. But I think it's... it's um, Tim Berners-Lee didn't want pictures, did he? He just wanted information. Yeah, exactly. And, um, Which is you know, quite fascinating. It's, it's interesting. You've got Tim Berners-Lee uh, co-runs the uh, Open Data Institute with Nigel Shadbolt. Um, and in the UK, based in London, and that's the Open Data Institute, because the good thing that we're following on the tails of is the governments around the world saw, oh, if we open up our house pricing data, people will build house price apps and our economy benefits from it. So building on top of the information that's out there is a very economically sound investment. In fact, there's this the open access to research agenda. I spoke with somebody who um, had to lobby the um, when it was down to four presidential candidates in the US. And they said, Trump's team were cool, because all you had to say to them was just like, make everything open, more money. They're like, cool, sign us up. Yeah, I can imagine that happening. Um, 
just in terms of in contrast to open i'll get throw another metaphor at you so you used if you wanted to get access to a track you used to have to buy an artist cd and within the academic world obviously when they're sharing their research and you're not having to pay for it the that's that's great for humanity for the individual who may like you say need to kind of keep their head above water or need money to uh, fund additional research uh, would it not make sense in some instances to put information behind walls in order to fund that kind of stuff? And is that I'm guessing that's something you think about? Yeah, uh, I mean, of course, these are all just my opinions, but my opinion on that is no. <laughs> right. is, and the reason behind that is um, the content creators in the film industry and in the music industry, they're the ones getting paid. Yeah. You know, uh, granted... Um, there might be some big record companies taking a big cut and what have you, but, you know, Adele gets paid at the end of the day. Whereas, depending on how impactful her uh, creative output is, if you're an academic and your creative output is a massively cited paper, you don't get paid anymore for that. In fact, what you're doing is you signing copyright over to a publishing company who then charges your new university for access to that content but you as a researcher i mean you get to play the famous angle right yeah you get notoriety and you're more likely to do well in your career but it's uh i can't think of a benefit to ever being behind a paywall that's not to say by the way full disclaimer um we use the line as open as possible as closed as necessary yeah again coming from the genetic space and things like this not everything that is should be made openly available. And we see this now with data generally. Yeah. You know, you don't want your web browser history to be made publicly available sure. in the same way that people don't want their genetic sequence to be made available because in 20 years, the government might say, well, you don't get health insurance because you're at risk of heart disease. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a good point. Um, how many people are on the platform? In terms of... Uh, People signed up and using it were in the hundreds of thousands. Um, in terms of the way we tried to be sustainable as we um, provide a version of it to universities. We work with publishers, we work with universities, we work with funders. And so we're at, um, we started that a couple of years ago. I've got somewhere between 50 and 100 universities signed up now who are using it. So that's going to be their version of it, which also works quite well because... If you get a university who's got 50,000 people at it, it's kind of like, oh, 50,000 new people. I was curious to find out if with that um, vast amount of people, that's quite a, it's an unprecedented, unprecedented situation that you have at your fingertips whereby you could, for example, propose a research area and then suggest that everyone within the community chips in on it. Is that something that's ever happened? or, or? Yeah, No, there's, there's great examples of that. You know, the, the uh, many eyes make all bugs shallow kind of concept. And there's this some really good ones where in the mathematics community where they've just put it on a block and said, let's try and solve this together. In terms of um, collaborations around data and things like this, the way that I think it will we'll really see the, the hockey stick in terms of innovation and finding stuff out is if I just want to go to Google and say, give me every data set Give me every genome that sequence that expresses this gene, pull all this information in together, and I'll reanalyze it over here. We're at the stage of putting files on the internet. The 
steps are taking place. Google last year decided that science data sets would be a certain thing within their search history, within their markup. So I think we'll get to that point, you know, definitely in the next few years where you can go to Google and say, give me everything that ticks these boxes. Wow. And then it's us. We, we have two responsibilities here. One is just to make sure that the content's available so everyone can query it. And two is to encourage the researchers that it's a good idea to do. On, on that, about being able to pull information and query it, you mentioned the way designers look at things uh, differently earlier. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to throw some, uh, just an, I'll call it an idea, but it's really just my own observation from the platform, which is, I remember in one of your talks, you said that academics like to publish papers via PDF. Mm-hmm. And from a designer's perspective, when you're looking through some of those PDFs, they, they make your eyes bleed. Mm-hmm. They're, they're just really, really illegible. And I, I'm, of course, I am completely understand that that's not necessarily what their, their role is or what they want to be spending their time thinking about. Mm-hmm. But I've always wondered if within the academic community, would it not make sense to create a universal language? I, I know... Um, Jack Fresco, one of my kind of big heroes, the founder of the Venus Project, he used to always preach about engineering because you could send a schematic from anywhere in the world to any other place and it would be understood. Mm-hmm. And it seems like it would, there should be a tool that creates the papers you know, or it gives you access to all the things you need. And it felt to me like Figshare was the perfect place for that because if they're actually creating their papers inside your platform and then they end up on your platform. It's a way to amplify the data set. Uh, obviously, you will know far better than me if that's a thing that's even possible to do or not. No, I think, I think that's a, it's a great idea in terms of it's very in line with kind of next steps of this whole field. And uh, when I say, you know, designers think differently, we had a funny one. There's an even... We had a... Um, a lot of academics will create these posters big A3 posters that they take to conferences and present and you never see them again. And um, our designers were tasked with doing one of these for Figshare, an academic poster that we could present at a, at a conference. And it was it, we had to tell them to undesign it. Right. Because it, was, <laughs> it looked too good. It was like, dude, people are going to think these are adverts. Yeah. Which is it. In a sense, they were. But, you know, it was presenting some research that we'd found about our usage or, you know, something that we'd found that was real research. Yeah. And we had to undesign it. And again, it's... It's playing between the lines there of what is, what are you going to get people to do? And I think the, the thing about what are you going to get people to do is um, very, very relevant in our field because academics, there's this idea that they already have too much to do. They want to do research and they've got too much administrative paperwork to jump through all the time. So how, getting them to do anything is difficult. Getting them to not write a paper in Word. Getting them to, you know, use a new technology that uses has any barrier to entry is tough. And, you know, it's it's we see it a lot with um, trying to change the way in which people behave. Is is I had a good example of this with with you know ideas are, are very easy to come up with and very hard to execute. And you know, my girlfriend was saying the other day that she was upset that this idea of an app she had, which scanned your food and told you how much the calorie intake was, had been taken. And I was like, hey, that's a huge amount of like AI and stuff going yeah. on. So like, <laughs> that to execute that must have cost millions. Yeah. And I was like, B, have you downloaded the app? And she's like, no, I don't know if I use it. And it's this, it's this balance between 
what makes perfect sense and what you can actually get people to do. And I think the interesting thing there is if you compare it to news journalism and the way that the BBC or the Guardian tell story around data, that is what academic publishing should look like today. You can play with the figures, you can play with the graphs because, you know, if you're going to spend money publishing papers, spend money making them stories. Yeah. And then I feel what we do is we break them down into the different uh, minimal units. So you could create a research project and produce 50 videos and 20 data sets, and then I could try and build on top of it. And I just want to take three of your videos and three of your data sets and create yeah. a story around that. Because the storytelling is the context. The storytelling is where the new findings the way you think about it is different to the way i think about it yeah and that is where we will move further faster so i i always thought about it as um so say making websites which has been so difficult for so many people for so many years and then you get platforms like squarespace come along that require no code and you can just drag and drop and becomes very simple all of a sudden um but it's all rooted in code so in terms of actually pulling information so currently with say the pdfs on the site if i if you were to search a term you might if unless it, am i right in saying that unless the paper was named that term it would unlikely surface if it was contained inside the document yeah that wouldn't happen today that's a technologically solvable problem there, there we go yeah all right so it's happening <laughs> yeah 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 and then it's it's true as well as when people say this idea of putting content available now and is it going to be of any use and there's not enough metadata to understand it and things like this and it's like well I can I can do, you know, um, full-text search on Dickens' work. Yeah. And it's not like when he wrote that on his typewriter or whatever, it was designed yeah. for full-text indexing. Just, just uh, for the purpose of the rest of the conversation, could you briefly explain what metadata is? Oh, sorry, yeah, and apologies for uh, breaching off on that. So metadata is if you have an object, in, in our case it's usually a file, like a video, data set, some code, the metadata is the description associated with it so it's the title it's the authors it's the keywords it's the the uh, description and it's very hot in our field because what the metadata is the information you need to understand that research yeah and the idea is if we want to go to that google idea of i oh, just give me everything that ticks these boxes google needs to understand that as well yeah and so there's a lot of different fields and they have a lot of different arguments over metadata standards and which is the appropriate <laughs> one and that's the that's yeah that's where you can get the other side to dancing in between of let's do this it's really cool yeah but you don't have the appropriate metadata standards and we actually did well with just building something naively and saying let's use the basic and we'll add to it later and people hated us for it <laughs> just before i move on to the second part of the interview what is the ultimate aspiration for Figshare? Like, where, where in, in the dream future, what does it become? I, I mean, the idea is that we can move further faster. Academia works to the extent that people, you know, take drugs that make them better. Or, you know, that there are people moving research forward, so we are making advancements. It could just be a lot more efficient. So the aim is... The other problem there is a lot of the people, the global 
um, economy, uh, the globe, the world doesn't have access to a lot of this information. You can argue a lot of the world doesn't have access to the internet, but I'm sure that will come. So the idea is that anybody anywhere can access any of the academic information that's been published, build on top of it, find new advances, and we can move the field of academia forward further, faster. One of the most fascinating aspects of Mark's journey was how he was able to take a tool that he created to scratch his own itch and turn it into a successful company. As Mark is dealing with academic research, I imagine this will inevitably bring about variations in rules from country to country, as well as different standards in research. I wanted to know how Mark was able to seek investment in the face of these hurdles, as well as getting his opinion on a number of ideas that I've had since using the site. I know in the past you've mentioned about Y Combinator, and I'm sure you may have read the essays of Paul Graham. And there was one section in there, and I I forget what he calls it, but I rephrased it to be called the unforeseen universal, basically just meaning a universal thing that's changed in an unforeseen way. So earlier we talked about Airbnb. Hotels didn't foresee people letting people into their homes and, and being able to rent it out. I'm curious to find out when you actually started the company, did you have any underlying principles that kind of guided what, what you what you wanted to do or have you manifested any since going through the process? We, uh, it's, we have come up with some, some guiding principles um, with regards to the space that we work in. I, I previously spoke about the idea that there's big corporate companies that exploit um, academic publishing and so forth. So it's very difficult to come here as a commercial company yeah. and say, uh, we always say that the, you know, the value we put in is bigger than the value we take out. Uh, that is a core driving principle. We believe in open. You, when you asked me before about putting stuff behind paywalls, I disagree with that. Um, as open as possible, as closed as necessary. Um, and we put a lot of, it's on the website now, we put a lot of lines into contracts and things like that that make it easy to get us. If you're working with us, you know, if you take on one of our uh, commercial products, you, you should be able to get out. And we, we have a line that says we will help you move to another system. Just, just for people listening again, like uh, how, do you, how do you make money? Oh, yeah. So we sell our services to uh, universities, funders, and academic publishers who need some data infrastructure, basically, because they, we've been helped by the fact that the government saw that they could make, you know, open was good for their government data, so it should be good for all academic research data. And now you see things like Chan Zuckerberg, who say everything has to be open, Gates Foundation, everything has to be open, yeah, because they can. They have the money, you know, and they know that it's going to... So if you're funded by Gates Foundation, you have to make all of your research outputs available. If you're at a university, they might need something to help you do that. So one concern, I imagine, if, you, if you're if you an academic researcher and you're looking to put your stuff out there openly in a, to a company who, as you say, does have a profit incentive, is mm-hmm. do they use that information and do you use it for good causes as opposed to bad ones? Um it, are you obviously you said you're you're using metadata in order to categorize stuff, but is scraping that data and providing insights with that a source of revenue also? It is not a source of revenue. Um, it's a really interesting idea, this whole idea of you know data privacy and and that's why we say as open as possible as close as necessary because not everything can and should be made openly available. Um, we do have um, 
the usual Google Analytics and those things, tracking things. We do have IP ranges tracked and stuff like that, and we don't expose that. Everything else, the good thing about working in an open space is, you know, you have an API. Anyone can go along at any time and pull every single file and all of the metadata from Figshare. And it, 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 it ties into that idea of it forces us to do our best job. Because if anyone can take all of the data and all of the information, why can't they provide the same service? Or um, if, if we are saying we'll help you move to another service if you're one of our uh, clients, then there's open source products out there. Why don't you choose one of them and then help it move it over and then you don't have to pay us. And so it forces us to give them a level of service um, that to this date we've never lost a client. So You were an academic studying stem cell biology and then you've gone on to create this company which as you're talking here it kind of boggles in terms of the infrastructure that this is probably requiring and I know that uh, you've mentioned in the past that different countries require different legislation and different levels of this, that and the other. So I, I imagine that was a little bit of a logistical nightmare. Um, there's this whole concept around facing hard problems and that it's getting over those hurdles which are difficult are the things which allow you to actually take the steps you need to go forward. Maybe other people who might be familiar with the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, that focus on the 20% gives you 80% of the results. Mm-hmm. And I'm constantly telling people when they're to trying to design their logo when they haven't designed the product yet or whatever, you know, or, or got an MVP to concentrate on the things which matter most. And what are some of the things that you've had to face that were particularly challenging? Yeah, and, and I mean, I think that is a very relevant question to... I don't know if it's just me or I don't know if this is happening a lot with everybody these days, but I have a lot of friends coming up to me and saying, you know, when I was born, web technologies wasn't a thing. I never knew I was going to run a software company because software companies weren't really that much of a thing and um, I have a lot of people coming to me and saying I've got this idea I had a mate last Thursday on, or literally last <laughs> Thursday on uh, when I went and played five-a-side football come up to me and say I've got this idea how would I get it from this idea to going to a venture capitalist or going to an angel investor and taking it from A to B to B and I can only talk about what I think is a good idea but I've seen it work is this whole idea of ideas are cheap and you have to have a proof of concept. And it's not that hard to make a proof of concept. As you say, there's lots of web technologies that help you do this. And, you know, you want to see the first version of Figshare. It was a WordPress media wiki mashup. <laughs> and my color scheme that I went for was white, day glow green and day turquoise. Scientist site. I thought it, yeah. yeah. Which is another thing as well, right? It, but it got the, people understood what the concept was. And this whole idea, it's a fun thing, I'm sure it happens in every industry, but we have this for scientists, by scientists. Yeah. And that's a terrible thing. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like, it should be for ta- scientists by a, a, a well-accomplished team of web developers and designers. Yeah. Because <laughs> they know how to do that stuff, whereas I don't know how to do it. But the idea of um, the good thing on the flip side of this idea of being a commercial company and getting asked all the hard questions is it's brilliant to get asked all the hard questions because if you focus on from day one so you're telling us you need to put we need to put data on your site we need to release our research on your site how do i know you're going to be here next week how do i know you're going to be here next year i'm not going to spend time putting my data on there so step one we need to be we need to take care of sustainability and persistence and what happens if we go away which is huge in our space but it's it's I know what, you know, I know 
the good, another good thing about working in the commercial space is you can say whatever you want. But I learned very quickly that you, you can say whatever you want, but you shouldn't say whatever you want. And so a lot of the non-commercial space in our world, in the, the academic world, nobody asks them the hard questions. And these things go away. So I love it when I get asked the hard question because it is something that we will need to, to solve. If it is a genuinely hard question, we need to come up with it, we need to address it. And well, for people listening out again, just oftentimes venture capitalists will look to the, the founders and say, what do these people know that gives them a, 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 an insurmountable uh, advantage over anyone else creating this idea? And oftentimes that's specialist knowledge. But mm-hmm. if it's not specialist knowledge, oftentimes it's just the the persistence and the 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 chutzpah or whatever you need to kind of get over those those hurdles and and actually get past those those hard problems. I mean, you look very fresh faced and cheerful now, but I'm sure there were days when you were tearing your hair out. You used to have yeah. long hair, so maybe I that's what maybe that's what happened. Hair. This is the corporate me. It <laughs> yeah. turns out after a while. That's one bit of uh, startup advice I'd give: is don't have long hair because there's only so many planes you can fall off after getting excited about the free beer and go to a meeting looking like Beetlejuice. So. <laughs> um, I know that your workforce is dispersed all throughout, mm-hmm. and. I imagine that that has some challenges in in and of itself and also culturally for how to build a company that has a brand that people want to be associated with and work for. How do you deal with some of those things? Yeah, I mean, and again, benefits of of being in the commercial space, benefits of starting something is is that, as you mentioned, you have investors there, have a financial incentive. But if you're doing okay, the, the, the other thing is that, you know, this is the first job I've ever had. And so I was very naive with some elements of it, most elements of it, which has been a good thing. But on the other side of it as well is, is this idea of um, I always wanted, I always said from day one is if we're going to do something, if we're going to start it from scratch, we might as well try and make it the best place for anyone to work. And it's hard. And making, pleasing all the people all the time is an impossible task I've learned. And I learned that in a uh, end of year review with some of our devs one time and I had one come in and say, the best thing we've done is this new work methodology of working. Thank God I'd have left without it. Next one came in and said, the worst thing about this year is this new methodology. And at that point, I realized you can't please all the people all the time. But, you know, trust people that they are good at what they're doing. And, um, yeah, I was mentioning just before the show started that we've moved to a new office now. And I don't think there's much need in our space to be geophysically located together these days so on that though so there's it takes so much trust as a as a business owner who have investors to answer to to have their developer in another part of the world and to just trust that they're going to deliver on what they what they promise they will mm-hmm. has there been circumstances where people have completely under delivered and or have we've been lucky yeah we've been lucky we haven't been burned that too much but i mean it's also a good sense of um it's, it's as companies get bigger, it's hard to do this. Everybody's idea is valued equally, but at the same time, it's very hard to influence those ideas into a uh, a corporate setup that has you know customers to answer to and things like this. But it's still, I mean, from a creative point of view and from a um, business logic point of view, it's it's kind of it kind of this is probably one of those few skills that um, translated really well from academia is. In academia, you have your experiment to do with a PhD. It's like four years, go away, do all this research, and then write it up. 
nobody chases you. Nobody middle manages you and, you know, so if you don't get it done at the end of the day, it's, it's really nice. We say to people, you know, we're pretty flexible on working hours. There's certain things we all have to turn up to and what have you. But, um, and, <laughs> and, and as you grow, it's really great. You give away hats. So, okay, you do marketing now. Great. You've told me that you are really good at marketing. Yeah. So I trust you in that. So go away and do that. Do it. Do it. If you're not doing your job, it'll pretty pretty quickly come out. We're not 500 people, you know? <laughs> Are you dishing out A grades and stuff as well, right? <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's just really interesting to see, you know, that people people do show their own, own initiative. And it's really interesting as well because people realize that if they don't show their own initiative in some aspects, that I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So if you're not doing it, no one's doing it. And then it's your responsibility. If it's, if it's taken off me onto you, you are responsible for it. Before I finish this section of the interview, just for people starting out, I mean, you've already mentioned people saying, how do I get it from here to here? Mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's the initiative to just get it over, mm-hmm. over the starting line. But are there anything else that you would say are, are watch outs or things that you've learned along the way that you would go, if you are starting out, think about this before you go jumping headfirst? Yeah. Uh, so two things that I think are really relevant here is, um, you know, there's the old adage that if you're, you know, if you don't run like me, I hate running. But, you know, <laughs> if you've got somebody who's, you know, not in great shape, who's taking the first steps for the first time going for a run, you know, you're lapping everybody on the couch. And I like the idea of little and often. You don't, I think people feel the need. I think people often think that their idea is going to get scooped tomorrow, which is usually, you know, my mates who tell me their ideas are like, I can't tell you what it is. <laughs> so I'm not building it, mate. I'm busy. Yeah. Uh, but, the idea that if you do little and often, if you just do 30 minutes on it every day, because most people are doing this while they've already got a job or, you know, that persistence is like going to the gym 30 minutes every day. You know, in a year, you'll have something huge. It's just doing it every day. And then um, just just to build, build on that one, because a little habit that I've tried to take on at the moment is whenever I hear something like that, I try and sum it up in, as a principle. Mm-hmm. And there's a Japanese word, which is Kaizen. Mm-hmm. Or I, if I, I probably pronounce that horribly wrong, but again, it just means incremental progress, and it's yeah. referring to business. And yeah, I can, couldn't agree more on that one. But yeah, if you need a word for it, yeah, kaizen. Kind, yeah. So my my advice, kaizen. And yeah. the, the other bit I was going to say is just this idea that, uh, and I got lucky with this is people often limit themselves in what they think the idea is. So if there's ever the opportunity to not limit that. And the example I use here is, luckily, I invented a word, which is figshare. And figshare was originally about the smallest component. I have all these figures, these small little units that I want to share. And at the time, I had figures, videos, and data sets. Data share as a domain was gone. <laughs> Video share was gone. And figshare uh, was available. Luckily, no one knows what it means. They think it's a made-up word. They think it's to do with a fruit, which is great. Because it's not really just static things that can be shared. It's it's every academic output that can be anything. It can be three D models. It can be you know three D printable dinosaur files we have on there. Um, so, but the idea, if you'd have asked me at the beginning, you would say, oh, it's for these things. And luckily, it's it's for everything. And so the scope of it is huge. But if you limit it at the beginning, it's very hard to unlimit it as time goes on. Great bit of advice. In the final question segment of the interview, I wanted to ask Mark about his life prior to becoming an entrepreneur. 
Stem cells have become a hot topic in mainstream science, and I wanted to get his take on what we can expect to come from the space moving forward. I'm one of these people who likes to follow kind of the latest fitness trends. And as you already mentioned earlier, there's a lot of buzz words going around. And how could I forgive myself if I've had a PhD stem cell biologist without asking some questions regarding that? Um, And one thing which has been a massive trend this year is uh, fasting and Mm -hmm. how that supposedly helps to... Um, you're asking the wrong person but it's Mm -hmm. about like regenerating stem cells or your stem cells help you to regenerate tissue or something along those lines Mm -hmm. and also i've been experiencing a sports injury and so i've been researching with regards to injecting and uh, Mm -hmm. stem cells and and that kind of thing uh just thought maybe it'd be good for you to tell us even what stem cells are and what are some of the interesting implications or implications or applications of stem cells today yeah it's been a while so uh this is why i love them it's just because it's it's the potential is huge and you know if i i accidentally fell into this career path i always thought i'd stay in academia i didn't realize how tough academia would have been but you know egos mean that i probably (laughs) would have thought i'd been the best at it um and so stem cells are in in layman terms they are cells that can turn into any other cell so mother cells or you know the idea that you can have a cell and you can uh, force it to go down different pathways. So skin cell, bone cell, muscle cell, heart cell, brain cell. And so um, what's really cool is it's moving really fast. And uh, so it's funny you mentioned the regenerative of um, damage to an injury or something like that. One of the things I did when, when my research on was you have stem cells in your bones, in your bone marrow. That's where most of your stem cells come from. And so when you injure yourself, the regenerative effect is the stem cells coming out of your bone marrow and they just nicely automatically locate to sites (laughs) of injury, which is cool, right? And so what I did in my research was this idea that uh, if you gave people drug treatments, could you fake uh, this kind of idea that you need to release more... uh, stem cells into the bloodstream and then they just magically go to the site of injury so the idea bit there being that if you say you've just injured your leg in a football match i come on i inject you with these drugs your stem cells go into the blood and so you get a ramped up response and so they get to the uh site of injury and they need to repair that muscle so they all turn into the muscle and it, it, it you know that's literally what happens with a heart attack is Stem cells come and they don't repair quickly enough. And so you get scar tissue and the heart doesn't pump regularly because of this scar tissue. So if you could ramp up the healing, then that is literally the application that I was looking for during my research. I also want to go on a little tangent here as well, because one thing I haven't done for a while in working in the industry that I work in now is talk about science and talk about research and how it can be applied. And just to go kind of loop all of these storylines together, um, saying about trusting in in your team, we have this really cool thing coming out, which is uh, our product manager, uh, no less, he's quite the showman, so it fits him well, (laughs) and uh, um, somebody who's employed to deal with engagement. They um, have a new podcast coming out. It is literally all the threads coming together. And it's coming out called School of Batman. Oh, cool. And it is, <laughs> it is basically the idea. Um, 
so your research is cool and all that, but how does it help Batman? Yeah. And so it's just a, it just forces academics to be like, yeah, 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 so you do stem cells, regenerative medicine, but how would that help Batman? I love that as an idea. We were just talking the other day about, you know, if we were to start the podcast again, you'd obviously try and do something a lot more novel, um, you know, in order to get into the academic papers and everything. And <laughs> that's it. Yeah, that's it. So uh, how does it help Batman? I can. What's the, the geek TV show? Uh, I forget what it is. Like, Big Bang Theory? Big Bang Theory. I can imagine them rocking that. I also have another tangent here, which is uh, <laughs> uh, one of the best things, you know, what's the highlight of my career with Figshare so far just before Christmas one of our developers was watching Big Fat Bang Theory and one of our stickers showed up in the background yes. of Big Bang Theory <laughs> I was like done we're done what two more questions for you so one of them is it, going back to something which has always stuck uh, stuck with me with one of my lecturers was he said I wasn't really an edu- I wasn't really about educating myself really until I was in my early 20s and when I got on the train of being interested in stuff it was kind of no stopping it but I remember him telling me that you either read no books or all the books and what I found is that when I've approached a subject say it's a film narrative and you realize it's an arc structure and that everyone fits the mold and as soon as you educate yourself on it and you can see through it you cease to enjoy the enjoy it to some degree mm-hmm. um one thing with academic people who have a high level of interest in lots of different subjects is you can sometimes work yourself into a bit of a state where you you go oh what's life all about and all these kind of things you know and i think it's that's an important thing to talk about because a lot of people uh, have similar experiences but it's rarely talked about is that something that you've ever experienced and uh you know how how do you go about approaching learning and 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 the meaning of life i guess yeah good question uh so i mean (laughs) i saw something recently it's uh it's by a guy called brilliant he's like a little comic book guy and his name's brilliant so it's easy to remember my memory is usually terrible (laughs) but um he said um all I ever want in life is a little bit more than I'll ever get. And I think that's true about everything. And it's a good way of thinking about things. And it's also true to, you know, like, again, tying everything together, the business side of things. I remember, as I said, this is my first job and I wasn't really prepared for it mentally in terms of I was okay with myself. I was okay with, you know, me struggling financially and things like that because... I was a student for 10 years. I'm as good at struggling financially. (laughs) But then as soon as we hired people and um, their mortgages were dependent on this business now and, you know, me securing investment from investors and things like that, I just couldn't deal with the stress. And so the thing that I learned to cope with very, (laughs) very early, and it sounds very bad saying this, it's just not caring. It's the idea that I obviously care deeply about what we're trying to do as a company. But, you know, but then you get all nihilistic and it makes it very easy. So you just, you know, at the end of the day, we're all just floating around and it really doesn't matter and we're all going to die. So who cares? So we might as well have a good a go as, as we can. And if we're all trying really hard and everybody loses their job at the end of it, we tried our best, man. You can't hold that me accountable for that directly. We tried our best and we tried to do something and you only live once. So what's the point? I think there's even that is a bit of a trend this year with the whole don't give a fuck. It seems to be a bit of a uh, yeah another one in the in the space. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I'll quickly finish just because I know maybe the people that will listen to this will be in the science community and we've already kind of touched on this and with regard to a public persona. So obviously when Donald Trump, who is who, who he is, becomes a president or uh, I, I can't wait to see what the next American electoral race is going to look like. But Oprah Khan, you're here 2020. <laughs> I, I, I mentioned uh, earlier about paywalls because there's people like, say, Sam Harris who have a large loyal audience that give him money and it allows affords him to travel and to sh- have debates about whatever topics. Uh do you think if you're going into a scientific domain nowadays that in order to be successful in it by means of getting funding and all of that kind of stuff that you need to have some form of public persona and coming right full circle back to how we started this conversation about how the industry is a game like almost any other industry is do you think that you people should be made aware of that up front you know that in order to if you're interested in being in this you need to play that yeah and I think it's um, it's it's very it's very niche in different worlds. And I think this whole idea that people need to have some level of, uh, as I say, it's very directly related to career in academia. And at the same time, it's it's definitely helped me with my you know world. I was on Twitter and I did a, a science blog that got attention, and that's probably how the people who ended up inviting me in to pitch an idea to them heard about me in the beginning, um, and. I think a lot of people do not know what is... I think a lot of people as well can't separate the public from the private as well, which I think is very important. I think you need to have a public... I wouldn't say persona. I think you need to have stuff that you are willing to do. If you're prepared to whore yourself out for your work, that's cool. If you're prepared (laughs) to do that in your personal life as well, that's cool. But they're separate things. And I think the idea that um, academia is definitely a space that needs more... Uh, expert voices and we've seen this movement in the US as a result of good old Trump that um, academics are applying to run for Senate because they're like no, no, no. Just because you have an opinion it doesn't make that a fact isn't real and there's a great book I read years ago called The Half-Life of Facts and it has such a different connotation now. You know, what was the best known, given all of the information, what is the real understanding that we have of something is eventually going to run out because we'll get more information. And that's not true anymore because people just say that, well, my opinion's right and vaccines cause autism. And yeah. factually, that is not what the best information we have or climate change or anything like this. And so we need more people who not just have an opinion on something, can offer an informed opinion on something, need to step up and say something because otherwise everybody who's just got an opinion will shout louder. On that though, I've always thought, and I apologise because we're going to make the podcast longer, but um, within the scientific community, say you want to be the next Einstein, it's going to take, a, I assume, a life, a life of intense study to get to a, a point where you can understand it enough to potentially throw out a contrarian viewpoint. And then once you've got that contrarian viewpoint that you believe is rooted in some kind of academic certainty or or truth, you've then got generations of people's preconceived notions of what is fact to, to fight up against. One thing which I've spoken about in the past is long longevity of life, I feel, is going to be important in order to continue to push us because you'll need that extension in order to kind of reach those levels in order to push things, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But um, 
yeah, whilst there is a lot of noise, it's almost it almost feels like if you do have a contrarian viewpoint that it's still quite hard to get it out there. Yeah, I mean, this is why I feel you need to get all the information out there and then let people make a, a filtered decision based on the information that they have. Yeah. Um, backed up with expertise. And a great example is, you know, Peter Higgs won the Nobel Prize for the Higgs boson. Wouldn't get funding today for his research that happened years and years ago because it didn't tick all of the funder boxes that it needs to today, but yet had made a big enough impact in that way. The other thing that I've learned that I found really weird, one of the really weird things about moving into this space is you get to like meet Nobel Prize winners and very far, very fast in terms of that side of things. But if the majority I've spoken to is just like, yeah, I worked hard, just like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of academics work hard and their novel stuff was actually novel. Yeah. They just looked upon it and you get you obviously you get geniuses and savants and things like that but let's you know I think we're going to get to the point where it's just get the basic research out there and let AI find all of the answers for <laughs> us. So that leads quite nicely onto our quick fire questions. So um yeah, in purpose of speed. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you had to put all your money into one facet of scientific discovery, where would you put it? One facet of this uh stem cells. Yeah. Stem cells. Yeah. There we go. <laughs> Uh, of all the scientific and technological developments, which do you feel is going to be the most influential of the next 10 years? I think we mentioned it already. I think CRISPR is this uh, really interesting way of actually, I think genetic engineering in general, and, and genetic engineering ticks every box in terms of, you know, you talk about longevity of life, you talk about curing disease, you talk about... Uh, massive implications for okay we want every child to be born a boy that could happen in china or india or we want we don't now we'll know everything about everybody okay so what if there is some uh genetic traits in you know uh sexual sexuality or sexual preferences is it uh, where the ethics the ethics on this whole space is crazy and so i think that is going to be a massive talk about story arcs i think that's going to be a story arc of our life Complete change of direction, but what's a great gift for you? Great <laughs> gift for me. Uh, good question. Yeah, uh, time, sleep, <laughs> uh, not bringing Wi-Fi onto planes so I can, you know, do nothing for a while. It's an interesting answer. Uh, a book or learning resource, just off the top of your head. It doesn't have to be your favourite, but just something you'd recommend people check out. A uh, book or learning resource. Uh, uh, and I'll add documentary to that. If it, it, just anything that comes to mind. Uh, I mean, uh, in the vein of the in the conversation, I've really liked listening to uh, Ezra Klein's podcast recently and just the broad scope of interesting... What's the name of it? I think it's called The Ezra Klein Show. Okay. Uh, it's go. probably not, but... Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep. Google it. Google it. Yeah. It'll be fine. Uh, so before I ask you the final, final, final question, where can people get hold of you and do you have any asks for the audience? Um, it's, uh, as you said, mentioned, the, the audience is um, probably not used to s- somebody from my field coming into a space like this. So I, I'd, like you came up with ideas at the beginning, I'd love to hear people's ideas at Mark Hannell on, on Twitter, markatfigshare.com. You just want to chat, or if you're hanging around in London, you want to talk tech, come speak to me. I want to play five-side football, so that's what I'm going to talk to you about. Um, so that just about wraps up my interview with Mark today. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. To sum up some of the great takeaways from this episode, I'm going to pass the show over to our producer, Adam, to summarise some of the key takeaways. 
Well, thanks for joining us today, Mark, and thank you for the wealth of insight you shared with us. Here's the five actionable insights that I wrote down as you were talking. Number one, is there anyone who can amplify what you do? They may have money, reach, or contacts. Number two, many eyes make all bugs shallow. Who can you collaborate with to make your task easier? Number three, you need to find a balance between what makes sense and what you're trying to make people do. Number four, to get your idea to investment stage, you need a proof of concept, but you should be prepared to answer the hard questions. And number five, work on your idea for 30 minutes every day, and after a year, you're going to have something big, something the Japanese might call Kaizen. Thank you, Adam. Really appreciate that. Some really great insights there from today's episode. Really appreciate it. Uh, So just before we leave off, Mark, if I could ask you one more final question, and that question is, if you could give the world one piece of advice to live a better, more meaningful life, what would it be? Um, Except the phrase that I said before, all you'll ever want is a little bit more than all you'll ever have. And if you're okay with that, you should be pretty chill. Awesome. Thanks very much. I really appreciate having you on. Thank you for listening to another episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please don't forget to subscribe and share. I'd also like to invite you to an ongoing project called the Move Me mailing list. If you enjoyed the show, I'm confident you'll enjoy this newsletter. It contains links to all the great content I've uncovered each month, along with insights of any interesting opportunities I've discovered. You can subscribe to this by visiting my website at rickyrichards.com. A special thanks to Frankie Byrne and James Utting, They're the tech heads that make this show possible. The intro music was composed by Dom Stores Fox. And thanks again to Reese Chapman for introing me to Lou and Lizette, the wonderful folks at Factory Studios in London, where this show is recorded. Finally, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a great day and keep creating. Until next time, bye for now.